Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. I take full responsibility for everything this government has been doing in tackling coronavirus, and I'm very proud of our record. Tens of thousands of our citizens have died avoidably. These were unnecessary deaths because of systematic government misconduct. With good British common sense, we will continue to defeat this virus and take this country forward. There are a lot of green shoots of opportunity on the horizon. You know, we've been held down on the forest floor for far too long, and we will reach that canopy again. Hello, you're listening to Bloomberg Westminster, your daily guide to British politics. I'm Sebastian Salik. And a very good afternoon. I'm Roger Hearing. Now, the man in the frame today is the Education Secretary, Gavin Williamson, who is resisting calls to step down over the government's exam results debacle. A-level and GCSE results will now be decided by teachers instead of by a controversial algorithm, and that's all despite Williamson insisting just days ago there would be no U-turns, no change. He maintains now that he only became aware of the problems with England's exam results system over the weekend. And he says the authorities are doing their best to fix any problems. If there is a situation where you think there's unfairness, the right thing to do is to take action and to take action swiftly and to take action decisively. And that is what we've done, making sure that youngsters are not in a situation where they don't get the grade that they deserve. That was Gavin Williamson, the man of the hour, the education secretary. And Labour is really not letting this one go. They're smart blood. They're keeping up the pressure. The general message from them is around government incompetence. Leader Keir Starmer calls this a complete fiasco. At the moment, the government needs to get this decision right. But Gavin Williamson, only days ago, said there wouldn't be a U-turn. Now he's U-turned. These were problems that were staring the government in the face for months. And the government has been slow and incompetent throughout the whole process. Keir Starmer, the Labour leader there. So, government in a rather sticky place, but it all sounds, I suppose, a bit déjà vu if you're north of the border, because uh, only a few weeks ago, uh, in Scotland, of course, there was uh, also a bit of a U-turn at the top of the Scottish government in terms of following a similar line. In fact, almost exactly the same line. Joining us now is Carol Monaghan, an SNP MP for Glasgow Northwest, and the party's education spokesperson. Carol, welcome to the programme. Um, just first of all uh, on this, um, uh, Gavin Williamson is clearly a man in a very difficult position. But interestingly, uh, Swin- John Swinney, your uh, person in the north who was uh, in, in Scotland who was looking after education, did a similar U-turn. He didn't resign. Should Gavin Williamson resign? Well, I think, first of all, it's, it's safe to say that this is not the academic year any of us were expecting. So there have been a, a huge number of challenges um, in terms of Gavin Williamson, um, he, this has been utterly avoidable. All this mess has been utterly avoidable in England because, as you say, it had already happened in Scotland. Now, the key thing was, though, when it happened in Scotland, the Scottish results were published on the 4th of August, and it was a week ago today that John Swinney decided that we would revert to teachers' estimates. But the key thing was that he sat down with teachers and students, he listened to them, he 
to them directly and he's faced up to his mistake. Now, during all that time, the Tories were jumping up and down calling for John Swinney's resignation rather than sorting out their own house. So it's no surprise that we find ourselves just a week later with, with this mess. Teachers not really knowing what to expect. Students wondering whether they have a place at university or not. And for Gavin Williamson to say that he only became aware of the issue over the weekend is simply not the case. He had seen what happened in Scotland. He had time to make it right for the students in England and he didn't do that. So so is Gavin Williamson being untruthful when he says that? Well, if he wasn't aware of the the potential problems that were facing him, then he is not fit for the position he's in. Um, he saw what was happening and we saw reports even before the, the A-level results came out last week in England. We already knew that up to 40% of grades would be downgraded. So these reports were already maybe there. should have been working on that at that point in time and it seems yeah. as though he was sleeping. Yeah, but isn't that really the the wider point in all this, Carol? Because uh, what everyone has said way before, in fact, the results came out in Scotland as well, was that this was something that was not going to work. It was it, it was a disaster that you could see coming a long way off. And surely the SNP government in Scotland should have actually, as should the Tories perhaps, have sat down and worked all this about not just in the last few days, but weeks, months ago, even. It's quite a difficult thing when we're dealing with a global pandemic and an unprecedented situation to get everything right first time. So I think people generally will accept that there are going to be bumps along the road. The the important point for government is that they respond quickly and in a reasonable manner when they meet these bumps. And if all that is happening is, as in Gavin Williamson's case, sitting pointing the finger of blame at Scotland while not sorting his own problems out, there's there's big issues and you've got to call into question, is this government actually fit to deal with something like the COVID-19 pandemic? But what about the solution that both England and Scotland has run with now, going with uh, teacher-approved grades? We've seen a lot of grade inflation, 38% uh, compared to last year when you look at A-star and A-grades, that's really going to prejudice the years to come, isn't it? The key thing for everybody this year was to stay healthy. And, you know, at the moment, yes, there's a lot of young people that are obviously feeling very unhappy about the situation. But first and foremost, we had to, to stay healthy. And I think in future, when employers or universities are looking at the, these grades, they'll say, this is a year group that faced a huge amount of challenge um, managed to continue their education in really adverse circumstances and actually they deserve what they got so so we're going to accept those grades considering all the other challenges that these young people had that particular year. Carol, let me pick up on something else that's uh, very much around this morning. As you know, uh, the Brexit talks are resuming uh, for this week. Um, there's now seven weeks to go, pretty much, uh, to the what seems to most people to be the absolute deadline for reaching some kind of deal. Now, we do know what the SNP, of course, are thinking about this, but you've probably been aware of the story, I think, on the front page of uh, The Express this morning, talking about uh, the uh, some sort of conspiracy by the SNP, um, by uh, Nicola Sturgeon, to try to make things difficult enough in order that uh, an independent Scotland could return to the Union. I mean, what is going on in the background? If you can't stop the Brexit process, is the SNP in some ways trying to sabotage it? 
Um, the SNP have been trying for the last four years to sabotage the Brexit process. Scotland voted to rename in the European Union, and we have um, certainly do not want to be leaving the European Union. Of course, that already happened. So if there was anything we could do to prolong the process, we'd certainly be doing that. Um, so I don't think that's, there's any secret on that particular um, issue. But... Uh, I think it's right to say with seven weeks to go that people should be should be very concerned. But the other thing is, though, that we've had all sorts of Brexit deadlines that just keep getting extended or changed or shifted. I don't think there's a lot of um, panic amongst the general public at the moment over this. I think they just say, if, oh, if we don't meet these deadlines, we'll just get another deadline. So... Um, so yes, and simply SNP, yeah, but of course we want to stay in the European Union, but ultimately that will probably be as part of a, an independent Scotland, and that's that's our ultimate aim. Carol, you say that, I mean, you've been trying to sabotage this for a while. Is it not better just to get a soft Brexit, a clean deal before the deadline finishes than causing some sort of delay and then risking a no deal, which we know is going to be economically so much more damaging, and at the same time as the effects of the coronavirus are still being felt? Well, you've got to remember that very early on, in um, after the vote in 2016, the Scottish government put together a, a, um, a paper that was called Scotland's Place in Europe, and that was all about a soft Brexit. It was how we could actually we could live with Brexit if certain things were in place, like, for example, freedom of movement. Um, so the, we were looking, if it were possible, to get a soft Brexit. So. All of that, we've been ready to actually work with the UK government since that point, but nobody has even done us the service of, of acknowledging that paper or of acknowledging what the Scottish people voted for. So I don't think it's fair to say we should just accept a soft Brexit. We're, we already know we're going to get a hard Brexit and we tried our best. We tried many, many times to push for a much soft, softer Brexit than has been forced upon us now. What then about the future for Scotland itself? Because it's the vexed issue of whether or not you get another referendum, of course, on independence. At the moment, you don't have the political power in Westminster to be able to force that through. Uh, so what do you do? Do you just sit there and wait and see what happens? Or do you try and take a more active view of trying to somehow push uh, another referendum through? Well, firstly, none of us are, are sitting about waiting for things and. Um, our campaign has been going on for many decades and it continues at the moment. And if you look at the polls that, um, where we're sitting in terms of independence, we're now up at 55% of, of Scots would favour an independent Scotland. So that is a, that's a massive um, increase in support for an independent Scotland. And, and that's before an official campaign has ever started. Um, back in the 2014 referendum, that campaign started with only a 29% support for independence and we managed to inflate that to 45% during the official campaign. So I think there's real energy and real enthusiasm for it. Of course, we, we need a Section 30, but that, I mean, there might be legal we can test that. But ultimately, if the Scottish people are asking, Scottish people are sovereign, if the Scottish people are pushing for a Section 30, ultimately the, yeah. the Westminster government will need to move on that. Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline. It's teamwork. And it's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. 
It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel's become one of the fastest-growing wealth management and investment banking firms in the country. Our financial advisors go beyond traditional wealth management to provide clients with direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises and a leading middle market investment bank because success is the drive it takes to keep climbing, the passion to keep investing, the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. Let's have a look at some of the other news in the world of politics. We start with Brexit. Trade talks resuming in Brussels after the summer break. The two sides have now seven weeks to reach an agreement over their future relationship. They're set to end on October, the second big EU summit uh, around then. Uh, but they're still waiting, really, both sides to see who blinks first. And this week, they're going to talk about things like fishing and the UK's access to the single market. We know where both sides stand on those, and it's pretty far apart. If you want to get into the details, we spoke to Tim Bale from Queen Mary University about this yesterday. So dig out that podcast and get a little briefing on where we're at with those Brexit talks. Meanwhile, we're still impossible finding it impossible to escape the two V words, virus and vaccine. Uh, the race to produce the first fully licensed vaccine to protect against coronavirus may come down to a playoff between England and Germany. Kate Bingham, chair of the UK Vaccine Task Force, said the two groups, one in Oxford, one in Mainz in Germany, were running head to head. They may yet see their immunisations approved before the end of December. The vaccines are among six that the UK has already ordered, with a total of 340 million doses. Bingham said early results from the three were encouraging, but singled out the Oxford and the German teams as the most advanced. Yeah, I think it's an England-German final that no one really cares. You were wins, always going to do that, weren't there. you? You were always going to mention that at some point. Penalty, <laughs> I think, comes next. Yeah, it is hoping. Uh, and then we've got uh, a story that's hanging over the SNP, Scotland's most senior civil servant being questioned by MSPs over Holyrood's handling of harassment allegations against Alex Salmon, the former leader. Permanent Secretary Leslie Evans is the first witness to appear at the inquiry into the former First Minister. And Salmon was cleared, though, remember, of 13 sexual offences and awarded over half a million pounds after a court ruled the Scottish government's actions were unlawful. So a story that we continue to follow there. Yes, and jobs news. Um, there may be a lot of jobs going, but there's one that's actually come. At least it's come to Sajid Javid, the former Chancellor. Uh, he's joined JP Morgan as a member of the Advisory Council for Europe, the Middle East and Africa. Now, JP Morgan told the staff in a memo that Javid was rejoining the bank because, of course, he had in fact started his career there. He left the cabinet back in February following that power struggle with the Prime Minister's chief advisor, Dominic Cummings. And doesn't that seem a long time ago? Yeah, and here's one person who maybe isn't feeling the pinch during this uh, coronavirus downturn. But anyway, it's been an interesting time for the Tories, hasn't that? Hasn't it? At previous times, you would have seen a series of ministerial resignations. And indeed, if you look back, there are lots of people from Dominic Cummings to Priti Patel who have been in the limelight for not the best reasons, but have ended up, Roger, keeping their jobs in what were very tricky situations. Yeah, and this morning, of course, the Education Secretary, Gavin Williamson, in the firing line. In fact, no one really expects him to be fired, despite what was, was an exam mess for which some think even the kindest word would be fiasco. 
It doesn't seem to be the way, really, that Boris Johnson rolls. Now, for more, we're joined by the former Conservative aide, Alex Dean, who's now Senior Managing Director of Strategic Communications and Head of Public Affairs UK at FTI Consulting. Alex, welcome to the programme. Now, uh, you've got a bit of inside knowledge, I guess, of the way the system works. I suppose some might say, well, an administration with an 80-seat majority can just, frankly, ignore resignation calls like this. Is that true? Um. It's an interesting question. I think that things have changed in recent decades from the kind of traditions that you're pointing to. And I don't actually think that's a party political position. I think that governments of both parties have outsourced a great deal of responsibility to um, arm's length bodies and organisations, not just their own civil servants, but bodies that get set up outside of government itself to run things, whether it be public health England in the health environment or off-qual uh, in education and so forth. And we can discuss whether or not that's a good But what it's meant is that ministers are always sort of arm's length from the impacts of the decisions that get taken on the front line. Um, you are right to say, of course, that ministers are ultimately responsible. But what I'm pointing to is I think there's been a trend in you know my political lifetime away from the minister being directly responsible for the events that hit the headlines day to day um and as i say that's not party political but bringing this situation to the fore i mean there have been so many people i mentioned a couple of them dominic cummings pretty patel i'd add robert jenrick to that as well it just seems almost impossible to get fired from boris johnson's cabinet is this something that's going to catch up with the prime minister do you think well, of course, Dominic uh, Cummings isn't in the cabinet. He's a sure, sure. But um, your wider point, of course, I understand. But I think on Gavin Williamson, who I thought was an excellent um, PPS to Prime Minister, was a very good chief whip, um, is someone who's loyal and a great survivor. And I think that if you... Um, I mean, look, we may come off air and find that um, things haven't, haven't gone so well for him, but I think most people would be unwise to sell their, their stock in Williamson always survives, I think. He's a remarkable um, career politician and someone who has uh, bounced back from many things. I wouldn't write him off here. Mm. Well, Alex, is it perhaps possible to put a darker spin on that and say, actually, he's someone, as former Chief Whip, as you say, who does know a lot about the background of a lot of senior people? I mean, uh, far be it from me to paint this yeah, in mafia tones, but my, does he know where the bodies are buried? No, on this stuff, I have my kind of firmest view. People have watched too much of the English version of House of Cards, or indeed the American version. Yeah, the idea that there's sort of in the corridors, illicit whispers and envelopes, uh, unaddressed envelopes are handed over with the secrets in it. I mean, most politics is cock up rather than conspiracy, if you'll forgive the expression. And, um, you know, people don't hold great dark secrets over each other. You could, three people in Westminster can't hold secrets anymore, let alone political parties. In the age of social media and briefings off, it's almost impossible to keep a secret in Westminster. I love the idea that we're still in the kind of world of of secrets being held off against ministers as we had in fiction 50, 80 years ago. But really, honestly, guys, it's for the birds. Um, what about this idea that this is in some way comparable to the poll tax issue of the Thatcher years, which is something that William Hague is writing about today in The Telegraph? Do you think that's a fair comparison to make? Yeah, I always take what William Hague says very seriously. Great experience and has obviously great insight into the... Um, background and root grassroots of the party to which we both belong. But I think if that comparison is going to be accurate, it's too soon to say um, at this stage. 
And the reason I say that is that if you think about what happened over a long, hot summer of the poll tax and a long period of time, it was a problem and a challenge that didn't go away for Margaret Thatcher's government for months. And whatever you think of this education crisis, and you know, if you've just had your A-level uh, results, then you've probably got some pretty passionate feelings about it. No one can claim that this has rolled on month after month in the kind of irresistible force that we saw with the poll tax. I mean, it might, but we're nowhere near that yet. Mm. But Alex, I mean, there are other things in there. If we assume that this is still a running sore, perhaps in uh, a few weeks' time, you might also be facing potentially a no-deal Brexit with the economic consequences of that, perhaps a second wave of the virus as well. I mean, it looks as if the stars are aligning in a way that could be really problematical for this government as we get towards the end of the year. You've got to ask yourself, um, qui bono, right? Like, who benefits from the, the events that you're setting out? The Labour Party was in favour of the algorithm before they were against it. And no matter how much uh, Starmer and Co decry what's happened over exam results, it's very unclear what they would have done differently, including the U-turn that we've seen. And it is a U-turn, but including the U-turn. So I don't think Labour gets much um, by the by way of points from the exam discussion. We'll have to wait and see, of course, what happens with GCSEs. That's the next um, pivot point in the calendar on the exams. But I don't think they get anything out of education. On the Brexit one, I really don't think that in the Starmer's mode you get much out of it at all for Labour. Keir Starmer looks at the numbers. He's more desperate than anything to be Prime Minister. You know, at the last election in December 2019, something like 1.7 million people who habitually vote Labour voted uh, for the Conservative Party. And they did say, but it was in Brexit election, wasn't it? They did say to get Brexit over the line. But if you're thinking about it from Starmer's perspective, more than 5 million voters who normally vote Labour voted for Brexit. If you look at it down that way, he's got more than 3 million votes still left to lose. So he's not exactly going to pedal softly on Brexit if he wants to be in um, number 10. And on the coronavirus one, yes, that's, I think that's where the, you're more likely to see political capital for Labour. But I think on that, the kind of suggestion that Keir Starmer is Captain Hindsight and that his arguments look a lot better after the fact um, are sticking to Labour. I don't think many people... I mean, lots of people might agree with individual criticisms being made of the government, but the idea that the Labour Party has a better plan for what's coming up, I think that's yet to bite in the public consciousness. Sure, but I mean, particularly picking up on what you were saying on um, the votes lost by Labour, these are in areas where the government is talking so heavily about its levelling up agenda. It's also an area where you're going to get a lot of people who are very badly affected by the exam fiasco, given that they're going to be in deprived areas where the algorithm, at least at first didn't rule in their favour? Yeah, they're not now, of course, because we've seen the switch. I think the bigger... Um, we've seen the switch away from the algorithm. Uh, they may still be angry, but then it's not pretty significantly mollified, I'd suggest, by the government's U-turn. I think the government's always in a difficult position on this kind of stuff because you, people hammer on the door and say, change your mind, change your mind. And then if government changes its mind, everyone says, you U-turn, ha-ha, we caught you. You did what we asked. And you, you, can't really, you can't really win. But I accept the point that you make about um, who is affected um, by these things. Government is deter- this government's determined to try to hang on to the so-called uh, red wall seats. At the moment, I've yet to see really what Labour does to make inroads back into those territories. So they seem to me to be tucking towards the kind of Lib Dem soft centre territory, um, traditionally Lib Dem at least soft centre territory, rather than um, seeking to take back their working class pro-Brexit areas. And, and for every vote they get off the Lib Dems, I think they lose one um, out of their traditional vote, the people who switched to the Tory party at the last election. So that's, I'm, I'm not trying to make hay. I think it's hard for Starmer actually to know which road to go down uh, there. But I, I really don't think that it looks like they're winning in the red wall seat yet.
Bloomberg Westminster. Listen weekdays at noon on DAB Digital Radio in London. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.